Hi, this is Sakash Pandey, and you are listening to South Asians Love Rap. Stories from people who look like me, set to the music that moves them. Today's episode uh, is a fun one. It's a conversation between my brother, Alok Pandey, and I. Uh, we grew up together in Santa Cruz, and I share some of the, the details uh, early on in this conversation. Um, but just to kind of give my brother his flowers, he's a very, very accomplished guy. He's uh, someone who came out of the University of Pennsylvania uh, in 2010 and uh, went straight into banking uh, in San Francisco, has kind of stayed in the Bay since uh, working through the ranks in technology all the way up to now being a CFO. Um, definitely a departure from from having Joseph on last week. I uh, know that some of the people I seek out tend to be artists and musicians and folks who uh, have had a direct impact on hip hop, but I definitely think in the spirit of uh, keeping this podcast on brand and representing the South Asians who love rap, I uh, wanted to bring in my brother who loves rap and comes from more of the traditional route uh, for a South Asian kid, second generation, pursuing finance. And, uh, I definitely want to vary the type of guests I bring on uh, to represent just who we are and uh, uh, how we've kind of sought out our own um, career paths and um, gone on our own journeys here. So hope you enjoy this conversation. It's, it's something that I had a lot of fun working on and uh, he and I get into some some brotherly love and tell some some old stories so you'll get to know a little bit more about me as well. Enjoy. All right, man. Stoked that we're doing this. Uh, good opportunity for us to chop it up and talk about the old days. Uh, you know, I think that couple biographical details that we have to get down and, and get down for the record. Uh, our age gap is just 14 months. So we basically grew up as twins and came up, uh, 14 and a half, right? 14 and a half. <laughs> 14 and a half. Got to get the facts right. Uh, and you know, we came up being exposed to a lot of the same cultural influences, uh, yep. being into similar kinds of music and, uh, playing in a lot of chess tournaments, being into a lot of sports, uh, playing sports competitively uh, and for fun on the block. And I think that, you know, that, that those are important details to weave in. But I, the first question, as I'm kind of framing this podcast as South Asians Love Rap and had someone on the first episode who is uh, a creative force and has done a ton, it's important to recognize that, that that's definitely more of an exception than the norm, right? And when it comes to the South Asian experience in the US, uh, I think that a lot more folks have gone uh, a route that isn't so much tied to creative output uh, and maybe is more tied to professional uh, exposure, whether that's through doc being a doctor, being an engineer, and, and your track to be in finance. So I'm curious, like, in just to kick off, like, how uh, how much has hip hop been a way that you've connected with other South Asians in college in your professional career? Yeah, man. I mean, it's a it's a great uh, thing to talk about because um, hip hop has really been a key part of my entire life, and it's just influenced kind of every part part of the journey. Um, you know, especially growing up. Um, you know, one thing I learned from a very early age uh, from just listening to hip hop and like watching rap videos was, you know, that crazy level of confidence 
that a lot of these hip hop artists and rappers had where, you know, you watch rap videos and it was like, you know, they were just like from the lyrics to like, even like the dance moves to kind of just like the swagger. Uh, it's just like, you know, you're just like, wow, these guys are so confident. Um, they're, you know, they know what they're doing. They're creative, they're artists, uh, they're so talented. Um, and the confidence they put into that art that they dedicate their lives to is just something that influenced me for thinking about my long-term career in terms of like, hey, like I should be just as confident as them in whatever that I think I can put my mind to whether it's, you know, sports or academics or a career in finance. Um, you asked a question about, you know, developing relationships with other South Asians uh, through hip hop. And it's it's amazing, man. I have so many stories. Uh, you know, the, the first couple that pop up in my mind were, you know, from the first days of college. You know, I was in a program called the Huntsman Program at Penn um, International Studies and Business. And, uh, um, you know, one the two of the first people I met, you know, my first day in or orientation uh, were these two guys, Akash Shah and Sagar Butt. The first conversations I had with them was with Akash. Uh, you know, he, he came up to me and like, you know, this was six, So Facebook had just launched and Akash came up to me, man. And he was like, Hey man, are you a loke? And I was like, yeah, that, that, I'm a loke. Uh, how'd you know my name? And he's like, dude, like I saw your Facebook profile and I looked at like the music that you like listening to. And it said, Mos Def, Talib Kweli, uh, Jay-Z, Kanye and Nas and Immortal Technique. And he is like, I looked at those artists, I looked at you, and I was like, this guy's gonna be my homie for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Now, 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 my flow is in the pocket like Wallace. I got the bounce like hydraulics. I can't call it. I got the swirl like alcohol. My freshman year, I was going through hella problems to lie. Bit up the nerd to drop my ass about a call. We literally were just like really close friends from like day one. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing that happened, uh, you know, literally the first week of freshman year with the other uh, South Asian guy in our uh, program who lived on my floor, his name was Sugger. And we, we would, you know, we'd obviously, it was freshman year of college, you know, everyone's drinking and like hanging out, especially before they go out. And we're in our dorm rooms. And every time before we'd go out, we would toast to pour out a little liquor for Tupac and Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was like that. Those are like, you know, memories that you just never forget. And, yeah. you know, allows, like hip hop to create these like pretty incredible bonds that, you know, last, you know, 15 years, 20 years, hopefully, you know, 30 plus years. Uh, why Gandhi? I mean, was that that's the South Asian connection and then Tupac, the, the hip hop connection? Yeah. I mean, like, look, dude, like I think every Indian person probably had like a Tupac poster on their wall when they were growing up. I mean, yeah. you and I both did. So. Yeah. That was like necessary, you know, the thug life. And then you like contrast the thug life with like the, the most iconic figure in the history of India, which right. is Gandhi. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think that's probably the reason. I think it's like, oh, we got like a brown person who everyone knows who they are. <laughs> They're famous. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> for sure, for sure. The collision of two icons. I mean, it's kind of the cover art. I chose like Gandhi and Biggie. Uh, uh, gone yeah, biggie exactly. as, as I mean, that's the thing, right? It. It's like everyone in the fucking world, like seven billion people. If you say like one Indian person who's like recognized, they say they'll tell you Gandhi. Right. So let's talk about us growing up, and I think part of this will be a conversation. Part of this will be stories that you'll share or your your take on it. I mean, I think 
one thing that's been made clear throughout our whole lifetime is uh, you have a great memory and you remember things and details that sometimes all forget. So I think this will be a good opportunity to fill in some some details and, and retell some stories that I remember a certain way. And I'm curious to hear how you remember it. But the first question is really just how do you remember hip hop first coming into our lives? Yeah, man, I could never forget this. So I remember a handyman uh, came over one day and we were probably, I was probably like seven or eight. You were probably like six or seven. And this dude, you know, came in, he was like a white dude. You know, he had like backwards hat, baggy jeans, you know, it was like 1996 or something. So he was like, thought he was pretty fresh. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, our parents kind of left the house for a little bit, just kind of like this guy was just like carpenter, like doing his thing or something. In our parents' bedroom, we had um, a, a tape player. We, I think we were, you and I were just like playing around with it. And uh, I think he was like around and he was like, Hey guys, like, what are you doing? And we were like, Oh, we're just like playing around with some tapes. And he's like, Oh, nice, nice. And then he was like, You guys like rap? <laughs> and I think, honestly, dude, I can never forget this because like we, you and I had like no idea what the hell rap was. Right. But we were just like, This guy, like, backwards hat like you know tall like you know white dude we're growing up in santa cruz where like you know everyone's white and like trying to be cool and like this guy's like trying to ask us some questions so we're like obviously gonna be like yeah of course dude rock the best (laughs) (laughs) and then this guy's like oh nice man nice you want you guys want to listen to my mixtape and like all the musical artists that i'm down with and we were like, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and then he was like, uh, yeah. then he just started naming like rap artists. And uh, I could never forget this. He's like, he literally just like pops on his tape. And he's like, you guys heard of DJ Pooh? And both me and you were like, yeah, dude, DJ Pooh's the best. And yeah, obviously we had no idea who the hell DJ Pooh was. Yeah. And I still have no idea who the hell DJ Pooh was. <laughs> and then he was like, yeah, listen to this. And then literally the tape comes on and it's like, hi, this is DJ Pooh. Fuck you. <laughs> And I think both of us just looked at each other and we're like, dude, this is the coolest shit we've ever listened to in our life. DJ Pooh, Zoo Tribe 97, T Lee, Fizz Gold, Drastic. Yeah, get the cash. Since I'm who's the world, I'ma stay on the ground. Sky high, feeling fine in this west sunshine. I'ma climb all about my chips. I ain't lying. I got my feet to the floor in the fast lane. Fine, drink the double R L in the Acura R L. Throw a wedge chasing me, and they bad as hell. Mr. G tribe, it ain't hard to tell. Pump the brakes, get the number, that's a player right there. See a chick don't spin just like a nigga spin. Make sure you spin more so you always win. This a good game, but who's to blame for the shame? It ain't the same. Talking about me and they think I'm motivated. And then from there, he just kept going. He's just like, y'all down with NWA? And we're like, yeah, yeah, NWA for sure. And then he was just like, popped on like, fuck the police. And we were like, yeah, fuck the police, fuck the police. <laughs> and and then he kept going. And then he was just like, yeah, Easy E, Ice Cube, Tupac. And then just like literally just started. This is 1996, right? So this is the heyday. Yeah. And so you just like kept going with that. And you and I were just like mind blown. And we were like, dude, one, we got to get into this rap thing because it's like there's cuss words that we've never <laughs> even heard of. Oh, and yeah. It's like the coolest thing of all time. Two, 
we I don't know who this white dude is, but he's like the second coolest person of all time after DJ Pooh, whoever <laughs> DJ Pooh is. And, and third, we need to go figure out who Tupac is because like that guy is the man. Right, right. And if I remember correctly, he left the tape with us and was like, this is for you guys. And uh, from that time, I think there was a short window where we were listening to it until Bo discovered it. Our mom discovered it, right? Do you remember that? Yeah. Dude, I I could never forget, man. So we were like listening to the Tupac tape like every day. We're just like, but hit him up, Hail Mary. You know, we're just like, this is the greatest shit, shit of all time. Yeah. And then I we went to Westlake Elementary School. And uh, I think you got picked up before I did or something like that. Or you, there was one day I like was in school. We were like, what, 1996? It was like third grade, maybe third or fourth grade, uh, probably third grade. And I just saw you in the car with like the Walkman. This is like the Walkman, right? Right, right, right. The tape, Walkman, headphones. um, And like, you just like look really pissed and you just like look sad. And I get in the car and then like Bo, like our mom just starts fucking yelling at us. She's like, what the hell is this? And she pops it in, literally just pops the tape into the car cassette player. And it's like, hit him up. Tupac hit him up. It's like, yeah, yeah, fuck your bitch and the clicky clang. First off, fuck your bitch and the clicky clang. Westside, when we ride, come equip with game. You claim to be a player, but I fucked your wife. We bust on bad boys, niggas fuck for life. Plus, Puffy trying to see me weak, hearts I rip. Vicky Smalls and Junior Mafia, some mark ass bitches. you know you and i had been fucking bumping it every single day for like a month yeah. we're like this is the greatest shit of all time <laughs> yep yep and i'm pretty sure she just like pulled out the reel like was like oh, yeah. you guys are done i'm just yanking the reel and this tape is done it's out yeah it was like the saddest day of my childhood dude. <laughs> like literally Tupac tape literally just got destroyed she just took all the like reel out of it and just like ripped it up threw it away it was just like done we were just like oh man then do you remember what we did next go for it go for it so dude so this is like back there's like we're not like buying stuff on amazon and stuff this is like 1996 so we we're like uh uh we went to radio shack this is so this is like back then like if you wanted to like buy anything related to like cds or uh cassette tape so not even cd this is like cassette tape era right yep. i don't think our car at that point even had a cd player i think it was just like a cassette no player. the ni- like 1990 car did not have a cd player no nope. no it didn't even have a cd player because no. i remember when we got the next car and we had a cd player we were extremely happy right right right. 99 yeah 99 yeah, yeah that's right 99 we got the next car and it was like we could finally listen to cds because we've been only exposed to cassette tapes right uh and so so then basically, uh, we go to Radio Shack 
look, it's Santa Cruz, right? So like everybody's white, uh, you know, and, you know, we walk in and we're like, oh, okay, we're, all right, we got to find this album. We got to find Tupac's greatest hits. Like, right. you know, we missed that. <laughs> shit, but I'm not listening to that stuff for day. If and I remember correctly, it was like a school, like we had to get school supplies or something because we couldn't just like tell our mom we needed a fucking Tupac album. So she took us yeah, there to get some school supplies. Yeah, we're like, can I get a Ticonderoga pencil and like an eraser <laughs> and like a ruler and like a TI-89 calculator and all yeah. this nerdy shit? Yeah. But really, we went there to get Tupac's The Greatest Hits. Right. Uh, and then uh, we see this homeboy. His name is probably like Matt or Sean or like Jason or something. Uh, and <laughs> we walk in and we're like, hey, man, like uh, you guys got Tupac? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And he's, he's like acting cool and stuff. These two kids who, you know, and he's just like, yeah, aisle 10. And we're like, oh, nice. You and I are just like high-fiving. <laughs> we're like, yeah, Tupac, since we're going to get it. And then we get to aisle 10 and there's no like Tupac to be found. And literally the only thing we found was a two-pack of cassette <laughs> And we're like, what the fuck is this? And then we asked like a help plumber. We were like, dude. We wanted Tupac's greatest hits, and you get us like a two pack of cassettes. Yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, man, I thought that's what you wanted." And we're like, "Nah, dude, that's not." <laughs> yeah, literally, his interpretation of Tupac. I don't even know if he knew who he was. He should have, right? It wasn't that obscure, but he just literally was like, two pack tapes, blank tapes. We'll give those to you. They might have even been blank CDs. I'm not sure if the technology was there, but I remember it being a two pack of just blank. And we were like, "Oh my god, such disappointment." And then, yeah, and then what I remember us doing next is all those uh, magazines at the time had the like Columbia Records, you fill it out and you get a certain amount of albums, right? So you can select the popular albums at the time. Uh, and this is funny because cleaning out my room the other day, I found like the Savage Garden and the Lou Bega and like those albums that we ordered using that service where it was just like mail, mail-in orders of CDs. Uh, this must have been, yeah, maybe 98, 99 at this point. But we were able to order the Tupac Greatest Hits. And so we took another stab at getting the Greatest Hits. And then history repeated itself because we again had to listen on the sly. And Bo caught it, caught us listening to that again and made us return the Tupac Greatest Hits album. Yeah, dude. I remember that. I remember that, dude. That's priceless, man. So, it's crazy. It's crazy how much how much of like a uh, 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 ordeal we went through just to like get Tupac's greatest hits. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and now it's like kids have Spotify. They can listen to whoever the hell they want at any time of day. And, and uh, but, but there was a real kind of caution around gangster rap. And I think that yeah. polit- politically now having read about that era, Tipper Gore, the lawsuits against Tupac, the sort of, uh, way that he had to combat this idea that he was causing people to murder police and causing people to um, go out and do things based on just listening to his records. Uh, that scare was put in our parents and especially Bo. Um, and I think the one thing I do remember us being able to buy no problem was Will Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you remember about Will Smith and, and what kind of relationship do you have with Will Smith from us being young and growing up? Yeah, I mean, dude, the thing about Will Smith, I think that like our parents and probably most parents in the 90s were down with was that he didn't really cuss in his in his sounds. Right. Like, you know, Big Willie style. I still remember that CD. Right. Like Will Smith with like the button up shirt with the hand up. Like yeah. I can never yeah, forget yeah, yeah, that yeah. album cover. We had it. Um, yeah. 
you know, in the nineties, you could think, you think about Will Smith, there's like Fresh Prince, yep. which is one of the greatest shows of all time. You and I watched it like a million times. Yep. Um, plus Independence Day, which yep. also was like literally one of the greatest movies, probably one of the greatest movies of the nineties, like maybe the biggest blockbuster of the nineties where he's like a superhero or like larger than life, um, you know, guy who saves the world basically. And then, and then also just like, you know, his rap music was just like, the guy was cool. I mean, like, <laughs> You know, I was just like, dude, like who who doesn't want to be in Miami after listening to Miami? Like right. I still remember it was like uh, you know, we you and I memorized all the lyrics of my song. Miami. Uh, uh, South Beach, bringing the heat. Uh. <laughs> Can y'all feel that? Can y'all feel that? Jig it out. Uh even before we ever set foot in miami and i remember the first time going to miami when i was like in college it was like 2009 right so like literally like almost 15 years later or something and it was like uh, and the first thing i said was water clear water so clear you could see through the bottom hundred thousand dollar car everybody got him exactly yeah <laughs> yeah it's stuck yeah 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 and that's the thing, right? He was just like catchy. He just talked about, you know, success. He talked about, uh, you know, just being like literally the freshest dude in the 90s. Um, and also in many ways, he was harmless, right? Like Tupac was talking about like real stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like I see no changes. Yeah. Like he was talking about the issues, like Dear Mama, right? Mm -hmm. Like all this stuff, if you just like read the lyrics, they were talking about what was going on back then. But uh, what Will Smith did uh, very successfully was essentially create um, an alternative universe to being the antithesis to Tupac, where he was still really cool. And you still associated him with like someone who was just like larger than life, a, um, you know, a, an actor, an artist, a rapper, but also someone who didn't do a lot of the things that gangst gangster rap represented, sure. which was yeah. violence, and, you know, swear words and all this stuff that, especially in the 90s, but like if you're a parent, you didn't want your kids to be exposed to at all. Right, right. And uh, I mean, that that song on the same album, Big Willie Style, getting jiggy with it, right? Like that's kind of like how I describe this music. It's jiggy. It's fun. It's upbeat. Uh, you can like, uh, you know, sing along to it, dance along to it. And yet our exposure to Tupac, I don't think we were paying close attention to all the things that he was saying. I don't think we could fully wrap our head around it. But I could sense pain in his music. I could tell that he was coming from a place where he was observing what was happening in America. He was pointing things out uh, and also fucking angry. Like he was just an emotional person. And for me, that connected. I came up with a lot of emotions. A lot of the pictures we have from early on are just like me being angry, me. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, that's just something that I was trying to come up with, trying to process. And hearing Tupac, just express so a range of emotions from like keep your head up like aspirational to like i'm so mad at everybody hit him up not even knowing what he's talking about but just being like i can tell he's angry that connects say the black of the better the sweet of the juice i say the dark of the flesh and the deep of the roots i give a holler to my sister's own welfare two pockets if don't nobody else care and uh i know they like to beat you down a lot and when you come around the block brothers clown a lot uh, I mean, we could talk, we could do this whole podcast about Tupac, right? But to tie it back to the South Asian community, um, you know, a lot of the music what we became exposed to was through like our family friends, right? Yeah. Who 
also were like super into hip hop, right? So it wasn't just, you know, Tupac. I remember, you know, Biggie, Jay-Z, I loved, I loved both of them, right? Growing up, like, you know, like every, every single Biggie song. I was a big fan of from, uh, you know, the juicy to notorious to, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and, uh, I still remember like, uh, so Mash, one of our close family friends, we were telling him we were probably in high school at this point, And it was like, I was like, Hey, like we love Biggie. Like I listen to Biggie all the time. Right. Yeah. Like it's just about Pac. It's like Biggie's amazing. And he was like, yo, you got to listen to this song. It's uh, uh Biggie and Jay-Z. It's called I love the dough. Yeah. And I remember, I, this is like when we started like, you know, just the evolution of music. Right. It was like, this is when we had like LimeWire and yep. like, yep. Uh, and so we were able to download songs on the go. So I remember he said that song. He's like, he's like, dude, that's not, that's my favorite song. And I was like, all right, I got, home that night literally limewire downloaded um i love the dough uh jay-z and biggie and there are some lyrics in that song that i just will never forget like my favorite one is jay comes in and he's like i'm in the 1600 seats watching tyson same night same fight but one of us cats ain't playing right i let you tell it yep i let you tell it people place yourselves in the shoes of two felons and tell me you want ball every chance you get at any chance you hit we live for the moment makes sense don't it just like dude when you put two of those like all-time artists together it's honestly like putting Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry, mm -hmm. LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, Scottie mm -hmm. uh, Pippen and Michael Jordan, put them on the same team. And that's how I feel when you put like those, that level of musical artists together. It's just like they, when they go back and forth, like the only thing that's comparable to how amazing that is, in my view, is literally the iconic NBA team. We hit makers with acres, roll shakers in Vegas. You can't break us, lost chips on Lakers, gassed off Shaq. Country house, tennis courts, and horseback ride and decide and crack crab a lobster. Who say monsters don't prosper? Niggas is actors, niggas deserve Oscars. Me, I'm critically acclaimed, slug past your brain, reminisce on days. To go back to, to this point you were making, I think that it, it's it's hard to understate how important our older family friends were in our understanding of music. Because I think the story you told earlier really paints that picture of like how hard it was to get exposure in Santa Cruz. And it, could, it kind of took this miracle handyman uh, while our parents were out of the house for us to even discover some of this music. But our main connection to our mom's community uh, from her home state in Orsa was a lot of the kids that were older than us, right? We were like the young kids in our group. And so they had been more exposed. Uh, I still remember Somesh's younger brother, Suchu, like giving us all of his music on iTunes when we first got our iPod. And that just exposed me to so much music, uh, the Roots and Craig David and all kinds of shit. But like it was that seed uh, before we were able to use LimeWire and I just went crazy with LimeWire. But I feel like there was not that much that we were exposed to uh, outside of those older family friends and, and, and uh, even, you know, people in Santa Cruz to some extent, more so those family friends. Yeah, I think you're right, man. And I think that that's also why... You know, I feel like mo like a lot of the South Asian people that we grew up with and like are still friends with, there's a deep connection between ha rap, hip hop and, you know, the South Asian community. I think one, it's like, you know, our parents struggled 
So we didn't, I mean, like most of us as second generation immigrants didn't struggle that much compared to what our parents had to do, but we at least like saw the struggle and we respect the struggle. So I think like a lot of rap, as you said, is about like, hey, the struggle in America, like make it whatever that means. I also think just like being a minority, you know, especially as South Asian immigrants, we all had like extremely stressful uh, upbringings just because there was a heavy emphasis on academic success and making sure that we went to the best colleges and like worked extremely hard, got the best scores on the SAT. I still remember like listening to like rap songs before like tests is going to calm me down and like, you know, get my mind off this for a little bit, uh, which, which I think a lot of South Asians, um, you know, associated with. And I think the other thing is just the intellectual aspect of rap, right. Is that a lot of us are voracious readers and like love the English language. And, you know, in many ways, the best lyricists, uh, Talib Kweli, uh, I wish I could rhyme like Talib Kweli, uh, <laughs> ultra, ultra, like, in, uh, you know, phenomenally talented uh, artists and lyricists are, you know, they're poets, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're telling their stories in such creative, poetic ways. Well, you mentioned also the intellectual aspect of, of artists. And if one album sums that up, it's, it's an album that we both got super into in high school, most definitely Talib Kweli or Black Star. Uh, yeah. What do you remember about discovering that album and what stands out to you from, from that experience? Um, oh man. Um, so much on my nine. I just can't recline. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, dude, that, you know, was one of the, I mean, I, I would say like Jay and big was like the beginning of like my love for, you know, when you to put like two guys together that are like all time, uh, you know, guys, it just like enhances everything. Um, I think with Moe's and Taleb, uh, you're not only putting like two, in my opinion, of like the greatest uh, uh, hip hop you know, rap artists together, but you're also putting, you know, incredible, like just like intellectual lyricists mm -hmm. who just like take the, the depth of the game so deep uh, that it's like, you know, it just goes to like the next level. Uh, I mean, there are just so many songs that, you know, they did together, uh, you know, respiration thieves in the night, uh, brown skin lady that just have so many, uh, definition redefinition that have so much, uh, just like depth breath, and then also just relatable to their rest of your life, right? Like basically Respiration, which was my favorite song in high school, yeah. is about like urban life and like how it's like to be like a, you know, black person in, in urban America. Places where you could get murdered over a glare, but everything is fair. It's a paradox we call reality. So keeping it real will make you a casualty of abnormal normality. Killers born naturally like Mickey and Mallory, not knowing the ways will get you capped like an NBA salary. I remember just like reading their lyrics online and I was just like, holy crap, this is like insane. Like, it's just like, you just learn so much just reading through them. Even like Brown Skin Lady is just about like, you know, 400 years yeah. of, you know, racism. Right. right? And right. so the opening. And yeah, we, we've been we, we've been conditioned. Yeah, we've been conditioned yeah. to disrespect our own women and like, you know, elevate white women and that whole conversation that that starts out a song that's about loving brown skin lady i'm a victim good hair nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning 
Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> So I want to step away from the interview for just a minute to share that, you know, I was a little conflicted about including Talib's brown skin lady because of some of the recent news that I've seen around Talib Kweli. Just to catch you all up uh, quickly, Talib recently claimed to be stepping away from Twitter. I was at the end of July, but a Twitter spokesperson uh, revealed lately that uh, recently that he's indefinitely suspended from Twitter. It all started at the beginning of July 2020, uh, very recently, when a woman named Maya A. Moody shared a critical comment about a post that was applauding rappers like Jay-Z and Big Boy and Talib for being married to black women. Uh, she responded to that post and named the fact that nearly all of those men listed are married to light-skinned women. And she said, quote, but that's a conversation for another day. Talib saw her comment, responded specifically to her, and said, nah, let's have that combo today. What followed was what she described as, quote, a week-long harassment spree, end quote. A string of direct mentions that a lot of his followers took a step further, um, digging up her, her personal info and doxing, as it's known today. Uh, she stayed active as well. She promoted some articles that discussed lawsuits Talib has been a part of that didn't lead to his conviction uh, for some predatory behavior. And really, I mean, it got messy, as a lot of these online conflicts do. I think the reason I'm bringing it up here is that um, specific to Brown Skin Lady, a, a song about colorism, um, it actually was brought up in an interview that he did about this particular subject. And the uh, interviewer asked him, quote, if we did a hard, deep dive, what would we find out about how Talib Kweli treats black women? And in the first line of his response, he said, you would find out that I'm the writer of a song called Black Girl Pain and Brown Skin Lady, songs that specifically deal with colorism and hip hop and black culture 20 years before anyone even accused me of colorism. Now, that's all and well. I mean, I respect him as an artist. I like those songs. Uh, I've seen him out there going after neo-Nazis. But this feels very different. I, I can't say I'm as sympathetic towards him. You know, that defense saying he wrote those songs, I don't really think holds up. Like, writing empowering songs about black women doesn't excuse bad behavior towards black women. It's like if Barry Jenkins went after a gay black man on social media and then was like, Oh, I, I directed Moonlight, as if as if Moonlight excuses the, the bad behavior. And really, it's just raising some questions about Talib's character. Uh, I don't know all the details. It hasn't led to anything legal or conclusive, but it's just something I wanted to make folks aware of and something that's come to mind um, as I think back on teenage years where both my brother and I really loved Talib. But um, now, you know, as an adult, I find some of his behavior misaligned with with the content and the tone of his uh of his songs like brown skin lady anyway back to the show well let's let's go to uh the college days and i i want to talk about an album that i know has meant a lot to you and that's watch the throne and so uh why that album what stands out to you when you think about watch the throne yeah man i mean like 
few things. One, Jay-Z and Kanye are two of my top 10 favorite um, rap artists of all time. And then just like, you know, look, like this is another thing that I'm just like, can't, you know, stop loving about rap and hip hop is just like the tie to sports, especially back basketball. Right. It's like, you know, uh, they're just like every single song on Watch the Throne I love. Um, You know, obviously in Paris is like, you know, like, you know, at at my wedding, you know, we fucking danced to it and sang it like 85 times. Um, You know, you know, as they did at their concerts, their concerts would have like 10 renditions of it and 10, 10 versions of it. And exactly. exactly. That will that song will always be timeless. Uh, but even like got have it right yeah. gotta have it dude is like literally because that that song for me is like literally the epitome of like two of the best of all time going back and forth last party we had they shut down pre-day Ain't that where the heat play? They hit ballers these yeah. days. Ain't, Ain't that, that like LeBron James? James. Ain't, Ain't that just, just like D-Way? Right. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what you're talking about, where the NBA like players uh, analogy, and you've got them directly comparing themselves to the two who are doing it at the best at the time. What's up, what's up, what's up, motherfucker? Where my money at? You gonna make me come down to your house where your mommy at? Mommy rap the kids, have them crying for their mommy back. Tell me that your daddy is. Tell them I just watch the throne to me is like the luxury album right the cover is this like immaculate golden construction that's like some designer in france i think like a clothing designer and, and i think a lot of the bars jay-z and kanye are throwing back and forth at each other are talking about their glamorous lifestyle and them being at the top of their game and and being in the leagues of billionaires. I mean, those two guys are billionaires now. They weren't necessarily at that time, but just the sort of aspirational wealth and the generational wealth they've been able to to build. And I think that album, if there's one that like aliens come down and I'm like, play, play me an album that conveys like hip hop dudes making it and, and achieving that, kind of ultimate goal and, and, and succeeding in this capitalist system watch the throne is one of those albums right yeah i mean look the beauty of a lot of watch the throne is like you know it basically like in a lot of ways relates the struggle to success mm-hmm. right it's mm-hmm. like one of jay-z's lines is like uh i was born the day fred hampton died right, right. right. like you know it's a, like a lot of just like being like look like we, you know, and Jay and Kanye, like, they, it wasn't like they grew up rich. Like, yeah. Jay, you know, was like, you know, Mercy Projects and, like, Kanye struggled significantly and, you know, obviously has, like, mental mental stuff going on, too. So, you know, I could never forget Jay on, like, Letterman, right? He was like, you know, the Letterman's like, yeah, I was, like, a newspaper boy and, like, Jay was like, yeah, I was, like, dealing drugs. Like, yeah. that was, like, my newspaper, right? right? Like, that right. was my newspaper route. Yeah. Um. So I think, you know watch the throne for me um kind of culminates a lot of you know the history of hip-hop that you know we started listening to in the 90s from like Pac and like Biggie and like NWA and like Ice Cube with like the struggle to actually being like all right like 
that's where we came from. But then like now we've made it. Right. Yeah. And I also think like you go back to the point where, you know, in why we love like Pac and like Mos Def and Talib Kweli is like they were super real. Yeah. But like I think Kanye and Jay are like super real too. They're like, yeah. look, man, like and Jay even says it like in his lines, right? He's like, you know, not bad for some immigrants. At the end of the day, like they started making a lot of money in America and like they, you know, you know, that like in Otis, they, you know, cut the doors off of the Maybach because right. they can. It's right. like, right. 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 You know, like, right. You, you know, what's 50 grand to a motherfucker like me? Please remind me. Right. right. I actually want to talk about Otis because the backstory behind Otis that, that I was really flat fascinated by is the when Watch the Throne was being made, I think there was a lot of hoopla and a lot of who's who's producers that wanted to work with Kanye and Jay-Z um, in terms of collaborators. They had Frank Ocean, they had Beyonce on a track, RZA produced one. But one of the mainstays, Kanye's mentor from early days is No ID. And No yeah. ID, the producer... Uh, when he heard the first single that they were going to put out, um, which is, uh, what's that song called? Oh man, I'm forgetting now. I totally butchered this, but the song I was trying to think of is Ham, Hard as a Motherfucker. And the story goes that even before that song came out, um, before January 2011, when Kanye and Jay were kind of skittering around all these top-notch hotels in Abu Dhabi and Sydney and bringing Russell Crowe into the studio, um, no ID, called them out. And he was like, look, the sound you guys are making is not going to move things forward. Uh, so why are you guys making an album? And they went back and forth. And at the end of that conversation, uh, according to no ID, he just said, all right, I'm not even going to work with y'all. I'm going to go work with Big Sean. <laughs> and Jay and Kanye were like, really? Wow. Like, okay. Uh, and so they scrapped a lot of the things that they had been doing up to that point. Then a few weeks later, uh, No ID came back, was hearing some of the things they were doing, uh, the co-production tags with like Hit Boy on In Paris and uh, 88 Keys on No Church in the Wild. And again, he called out Kanye, his protege, once upon a time, and was like, where's your song? Like, where's the song that you are making by yourself without any collaboration co-production uh and he challenged him in a way that made kanye be like all right give me a few days and come back and so no id heard got some angry words from the label who were like dude you're pushing back our timeline but uh kanye went went in spent a few days took that otis sample um the otis redding sample and turned it into the beat that became otis and that's the only song on the album that's solely uh produced by kanye and a lot of that has to do with no ID um, pushing him. Um, all right, back to the show. Uh, the the video you called out, I think it's a Spike Jones video with the the doors cut off, the ultimate sign of just like we made it and we can do this. Uh, and and the line that you mentioned off of it, or, or a line that that I think we both can can connect to and share stories about, is that line: 
Not bad for some immigrants. When you got married, uh, and you know, this was 2017, and uh, you and Tina just put in a lot to planning that wedding. It was an incredible union, uh, Tina's family being from, from Vegas. Uh, walking into the hall, right? It was just our two families. Uh, you said that line. And, and I don't know. Can you tell that story of uh, how that popped into your head and, and, and what that moment was like? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, um, you know, this is where like hip hop is like influenced my entire life, right? Where, you know, you just have these like lyrics that, you know, just take you to another place from like, how does this relate to like the experience? How does this relate to my life? Uh, and I think that moment, right. It was March, 2017. So Trump had gotten inaugurated like, you know, less than two months, like two months beforehand, less than two months beforehand. A lot of the rhetoric he was using was like anti-immigrant. Um, Steve Bannon had just come out, I think like two weeks before my wedding and just said, Hey, like there are, um, there are too many like minority CEOs. And he was referring directly to the Indian CEOs, uh, like Satya Nadella and Shantanu and Sundar and like all, all of these guys who obviously have achieved amazing heights, um, you know, in, in the world and also in the, the world of technology where I work. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there's obviously a lot of emotions going in from like getting married, uh, you know, being part of like going into the reception hall, uh, but I think for, for, for us too, I mean, like the other thing that we haven't really talked about where we were more like beneficiaries of our parents' hard work, but, you know, both of our parents grew up in poverty where they had to worry about where food would come up from every day. And like, you know, our dad had, you know, got a PhD in University of Chicago and is a world renowned professor. But when he was growing up, he didn't even have electricity to, uh, you know, study under, like he'd have to go under the street lamps in his neighborhood to read his textbooks because he didn't have electricity at his house. And in that there were droughts, there were, uh, and he didn't have food for, from, you know, so that was kind of like, and that level of poverty is like another thing in rap that you and I have just heard our parents' story of where we heard about the struggle and we were able to relate to that struggle. We didn't, we were fortunate because they worked so hard and like, we didn't have to experience that level of struggle, especially compared to like what the rap artists that rap talk about it have to, or what your, what our parents had to. Yeah. And I think, you know, even taking the poverty angle and pushing that aside and thinking about displacement, right? I had the realization when I turned 30 that our mom, when she turned 30 or at age 30, she left the place she called home forever and just moved to this new place and built a life there and, and built an incredibly successful life. And, and to think about like, what, what would that mean? <laughs> you know, like how wild would that be? And what, what kind of challenge would that be, uh, to just be uprooted, um, voluntarily? It's not, it's, it's definitely a choice, but I think to be able to start afresh and build from there. And I think that's where that line, not bad for some immigrants, when we looked out on that hall and saw, you know, what both sets of parents contributed to making that weekend possible, uh, and also the joy, the community that was present. And uh, I think a lot of people who are not Indian are confused when they hear about 500, 600 person wedding, but our parents have been able to cultivate a really wide community. 
and have, have shown a lot of love to people and gotten a lot uh, back because of what they've put in. And, and that kind of line in some strange way summed a lot of it up. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 100%. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I mean, that line, when I heard you say it, I've had the first line of my speech, right? When I look out on this crowd tonight, when I look around the room, there's a few things that pop into my head. And the first is not bad for some immigrants. <laughs> And I remember people coming up to me afterward that were like, uh, that, that line hit home, right? And people who were uh, friends of our parents and don't have a connection with hip hop at all, right? To kind of bring it full circle to the sort of anxieties our parents had around us listening to this music and then take it, you know, 30 years, 20, 20 25 years later and, and a line from a Jay-Z and Kanye song uh, can have that power and that connection. Again, you go through these moments in your life where, you know, I think hip hop really accentuates a lot of things in like short lyrics, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. like, you know, you, you know, there's like, there's like a lot of words that can describe emotions, but another great thing about hip hop is it's like, you can just put things in like one or two lines, right? right. That just kind of like sum things up. Right. And, um, you know, I think that, I think that that's another beauty of, you know, hip hop and like that, that's the great example of it. I want to thank my brother for coming on the show. Uh, it was great to hang out with them and uh, record this. I know you know the two of us had a lot of fun, and we hope you enjoyed it as well. South Asians Love Rap is produced, edited, mastered by me, Akash Pandey. Um, the cover art was done by Aaron Zonka. Uh, the theme song is done by Dust Collector. Thanks again for listening. Uh, hope to have more episodes out soon.